Medicare is complicated. Medicare can be confusing. Medicare is no fun to study. Will you know what decisions to make when Medicare time arrives for you? My name is Doug Jones, and I wrote a book to help you figure it all out. Medicare for the Lazy Man. It's on sale at Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com. Also, you can download and listen to my podcast, Medicare for the Lazy Man, wherever fine podcasts are given away free of charge. Medicare for the Lazy Man, simplest and easiest guide ever. Just as great as a hole-in-one, it's the Medicare for the Lazy Man podcast. The Medicare podcast par excellence. Trying to cram 10 pounds of Medicare into a 5-pound bag, it's Medicare expert Doug Jones. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Medicare for the Lazy Man podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Where I am, it's another beautiful, sunny Arizona day. This is going to be the year without monsoon, meaning no summer rainstorms for us Arizonans. But for you, wherever you are, I'm hoping that you're enjoying a typical, wonderful summer. Now, typical can apply also to people who are passing through that Medicare portal. Uh, There is really a typical experience that some people have that's kind of confusing and painful. And I want to relieve people of that concern. And so, therefore, I wrote a book. The book is entitled Medicare for the Lazy Man. How did I get the title? I looked in the mirror. Medicare for the Lazy Man 2023 is on sale now at Barnes and Noble and Amazon.com, and it is there for your taking. Yeah, it costs a couple of bucks, but basically it's going to be the very inexpensive acquisition of valuable Medicare knowledge that's going to help you make the transition from Obamacare to Medicare. And it comes in several different uh, versions. It comes as a paperback. It comes as a Kindle book. It comes as an audio book, or it comes as a hardcover, artfully crafted uh, museum piece that's suitable for putting on your shelf and admiring for the rest of your uh, natural natural life, I would say. Anyway, um, please consider buying the book, reading the book, and then contacting me to solidify your Medicare insurance protection, because that's what I do for people. I'm an insurance agent licensed everywhere in the United States, and I like to help people make that transition from Obamacare to Medicare, and I manage to do it in such a way that they consider it to be a painless experience and one that didn't cost them very much money. That's what I specialize in. So when you are ready to contact me, I will be ready to welcome you with open arms as a new client for the period of time it takes to uh, enter that Medicare portal and come out the other side smiling like nobody's business. Speaking of nobody's business, uh, Randy and I have uh, spent a bunch of time uh, today and every other day before we podcast in um uh, examining each other's uh, lifestyles and wondering what's going on. And uh, nobody's business applies to Randy because he just asked me a very personal question about the the uh, staff 
here. And uh, the the thing was that I spend certain evenings with the content curator, and I don't think it's anybody's business, but Randy's getting all snoopy. So I had to tell him to mind his beeswax. But uh, on the other hand, if you've got any interesting stories about your own activities, I'm open. I'm I'm ready to hear them. I don't. Oh. I, I, I always depend on you for interesting stories because you are absolutely a source of stories. I don't think it ends. I think they're they're just endless stories, but they're great stories. I love every one of them. Well, I just told you about a book that I read recently. I finished reading the book, and I described the bare essentials of that story. And Randy said, you know, that kind of vaguely reminds me of a story I read in Reader's Digest years ago. And here's the way I remember this story. Turns out it was the Reader's Digest version of the same book that I had just finished reading. And it was about a uh, uh, World War II bomber crew that was assisted and their lives were saved by the actions of a uh, German fighter pilot who, instead of shooting them down, helped them escape the continent and get back to England to, uh, you know, live out the rest of their lives after their mission and their plane had been shot up and their their mission was uh, completed, their, their bomb load had been dropped. And uh, so we, in comparing notes, it turns out we were talking about the same people. And it was uh, quite an interesting story about how a, a German fighter pilot in World War II uh, went out of his way to help a, a hapless bomber crew that was on the verge of just crashing into the into the uh, German soil or into the North Sea. I guess they, they made it out of Germany without getting shot down, but uh, he tried to help them go to Sweden, which was closer, but they determined they were going to fly back to England, and they just barely made it. So it was a pretty cool story, and I hope Randy enjoys it. He's written down the title of the book, and I believe he's probably going to get it and read it. I am, I because I I read it years ago, as I told you, out of Reader's Digest. And now I can now I can actually compare the, you know, the full dinner. You know, yeah. I, I had just a snack of it. Right, right. And <laughs> and then, of, of course, the years went by and your memory of that snack kind of became distorted. So you didn't remember all the details. I so didn't. I think, I, I think you're going to enjoy revisiting the whole book, the uh, all the detail in, involved and, in, you know, from when these guys were little kids up until yeah. their they're they're meeting over the skies of Germany at the waning days of World War II, and then their search for each other years after the war, like ten years after the war. All of a sudden, it occurs to them, "Hey, you know, I'd like to find out who that guy was." And uh, I so. think the reason that it's stuck in my head over the over all these years is that it it speaks to the honor between military men. That's exactly what it was, and the way the book is written, this German fighter pilot uh, was uh, among served among a bunch of people with honor as though they were World War One fighter pilots. In World War One, I, I understand that the pilots would um, actually go down to make sure that the pilot in the plane they had just shot down survived his parachute jump. And uh, they would do things to go out of their way to make sure that their enemies, their fellow fighter pilot enemies, survived the war. And um, well, there was one. There was a story about one uh, Russian pilot who was trapped as he couldn't eject from his plane, and his plane was on fire. And so his German adversary, who had shot up his plane, was flying alongside him, and he turned and killed him, put him out of his misery because the Russian was slowly burning to death inside his, the cockpit of his own airplane. And that was kind of a legendary story. 
But then the the evil bastards who ran Nazi Germany didn't like that kind of stuff. And uh, so these guys were not only enemies of the countries they were fighting, but they were also enemies of their own uh, their own uh, government. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, a lot of them were snatched up, thrown into concentration camps when they were perceived to be enemies of the state. And uh, there's that side of the story that we don't think about very often. No, no, we absolutely don't. Well, you know something? Yes, it's time you, to get to work. We need to get to work. But before we do, I, I've got a question for you. Already? We have been, over the course of the last several weeks, uh, wedging out a little bit of time in the podcast to deal with a Medicare question. Right. Uh, we have a list of 25 often asked Medicare questions. And guess what? I'm down to the last one. Oh, man, I thought we had a few left. Only one. Though, no, huh? no, we have one left on this particular list. Sure. Now, what I'm going to what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to use this last question today, but I'm also out looking for other lists. Okay. And uh, so we're not going to run out of questions. We are just going to change our source. So anyway, for today's question. Yes, sir. Let me pull it up. And we are going to have the uh, 25th question on this list. But what we talked about last podcast was we talked about, I enrolled in Medicare Advantage. Boom. Yep, yep, yep. And want to get a Medigap plan, otherwise known as a Medicare supplement. How can I switch plans? And that's the one that we talked about in the last episode. So Okay, that was question that, 24, huh? That was question 24. Here we go. It's question number 25. Do Medicare benefits change each year? Medicare benefits do not change each year, except to the extent that there are certain cost-sharing elements of Medicare. In other words, there's a Part B deductible. There are some co-payments involved with certain types of care. Those may be tied to the cost of living, the consumer price index. So every year, there is a change typically in the exposure that people have, Medicare participants might have, to um, deductibles and co-insurance. But those changes are fairly small. So in the larger sense of the word, I would say that Medicare benefits do not change each year. They're remarkably stable. And uh, if there is a change in Medicare, it's going to come as a result of a big um, massive uh, either act of Congress or a, uh, uh, a a total, you know, a big news deal. Like there was a change that started January 1st of 2020 that had been in the works for five years and it was big news. That's the kind of change that doesn't occur very often. And so um, I'm, I'm going to, I feel pretty comfortable that my answer is no Medicare benefits don't change uh, routinely. You are absolutely correct, sir. Oh, oh boy, who could have? Who would have thunk that, huh? Um, so you have Paul, you have represented yourself well on this list of twenty-five questions. Now I am going digging for the new one. All right, well, keep that list handy because I'm thinking that we can take one episode, you know, in the next few weeks or sometime, and we can use those twenty-five questions from one to twenty-five and put them all in one episode. It may be helpful to audience members that are, uh, you know, that need to have more information. So hang on to that list if you would. Oh, I've got the list. No doubt about it. And the ones, 
the ones I'm beginning to uncover now, th this is going to take a little bit more mining information uh -huh. mining, but sure. they're very specific questions that in my opinion, people will have no sense of what the answer. Now you will, obviously you're the expert, but general public will have no sense of what the answer is. Well, I can't uh, wait. This is going to be exciting. But they are coming out from under various rocks that I'm overturning. <laughs> cool. Uh, if you overturn a rock that has uh, our uh, our good friend from uh, Sugarland, Texas, underneath it, then flip that rock right back over. Uh, right. That that would be Tony with an I, because she's a girl. Um, I'm I'm skipping over my original. Uh, uh, content for the beginning of the episode today to go to uh, our friend Dominic Regina, who wrote in and asked a question, which I was unable to answer. Now, here's the kind of deep thinking that Dominic does. Dominic um, asked me if his Irma penalty would begin again at a predictable time the second year of his, um, you know, having to pay the penalty. He had an Irma penalty based on his financial success and he filed a form indicating that the reason his financial success uh went away is because he had a life-changing event and there's a form for that it's called an ssa-44 and they came back and they relieved him of having to pay the irma penalty so now he's saying i know that they're going to look again next year at my earnings two years ago what time of the year will that happen will it be at the beginning of the year will it be in april when um, filing occurs or will it be at some other time of the year and i said dominic i have been racking my brains for an answer to your question but i just can't say for sure when the social security administration will tap into the irs database to see the results of your two-year-old tax filing however congratulations are in order not everybody has your level of success with the form SSA 44 and getting out from under that odorous and onerous Irma penalty. And then Dominic had a PS. <laughs> he said, I think Drew, my uh, Canadian nephew, Drew McMillan, who starts out every episode, he said, I think Drew should start using the tagline. I'm called Doug with a G because I'm a guy. Well, um, I had to break the news to uh, Dominic that I thought of that during one episode. I came up with that right off the top of my head, and I almost had to uh, stop the recording of the podcast episode because Randy was laughing so hard he was almost hyperventilating. I was afraid I was going to have to call over there and have somebody give him uh, a Heimlich maneuver because he was, uh, and I was pretty proud of myself for coming up with that off the top of my head. Dominic was just a few episodes behind me but it's a clever, uh, a clever response. I just listened to Tony's most recent podcast and Tony remember started out and her podcast episodes would just wander all over the place as she tried to answer a question. Randy asked me a question. I wander a little bit, but I eventually try to end my response. Tony will just keep yakking and yakking and yakking. And after the fact, somebody goes back and, uh, and, um, cuts up those episodes and shortens them, takes out all the unrelated drivel. <laughs> and uh, then she eventually got a guy named Jim, who I'm pretty sure bats for the other team, but Jim is there to help her stay on track. I can still tell when I listen carefully that there has been a lot of surgery done to her podcast episodes to shorten them up, to remove 
extemporaneous uh, or extraneous uh, material. And then the most recent episode, which I think she comes out every Wednesday, the most recent episode, they made reference to a uh, a um, an engineer, um, actually an editor that they have that takes their episode, and that's the person responsible for doing all this. I think the woman's name is Helga or something like that, if I'm not remembering the name. I, but So now there are three of them working to put this uh, podcast together, and it's just incredible. Uh, it's like they turn Tony loose, but they have to use cattle prods to get her back back on track and uh, to keep the uh, subject moving forward in the direction they want to do. But at the very end of the episode, they made mention of this, this uh, podcast engineer that was apparently in charge of the quality of the podcast. And they said that she could change their voices to be like Donald Duck and Minnie Mouse. And then all of a sudden, there were Donald Duck and Minnie Mouse at the end of her po- her Medicare podcast. Now, Randy and I have been accused of wandering off the reservation more than once and telling stories that have nothing to do with Medicare and everything else. I don't think we've ever stooped to Donald Duck voices and Mickey Mouse vo- or Minnie Mouse voices. We but, have not. I mean, that that is really stooping low. Well, you've got a door behind you with your projects. At least it used to have all of your clients and your projects on it. You might want to just add that, you know, Donald Duck, Minnie Mouse voices for future podcast episodes. Well, I, I thought I'd give you a, a kind of a heads up today. You're going to the podcast that I prepared for you to publish Friday. Uh-huh. Uh, listen carefully to that because I added a little bit of Extra oh boy. attention. A little bit of extra stuff to that, too. Oh more, boy. More, more than my normal stuff. I think it blended in well. Uh, I'm very particularly proud of it. So, But listen closely, because there's been a couple times I've put stuff in there, it's certainly at the end. And I can tell you didn't listen all the way through because you didn't say anything. Well, you know what happens is I listen to the episodes with the podcast um, the uh, uh, content coordinator, and often she is uh, railing at me about the times I maybe didn't com- stay on subject or uh, told a joke that fell flat or uh, was impolite to you, uh, you know, that I, I sent you home crying. <laughs> so I, often, I, hate, I hate when that happens. Often at the end of the podcast episode, I'm being chastised for something by the uh, the staff. And so that may be why. So I'm going to have to in, impose a new rule. We listen in complete silence until the recording has completely ended. Well, listen carefully. Listen carefully tonight. Okay. And I want the audience to listen carefully to the next of the lengthy uh, permutations to the English language that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention are imposing on us. Now, you wouldn't think a government agency entitled the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention would actually care about the English language. But to them, it's hugely important that we revise our uh, uh, use of English in order not to hurt people's feelings. I don't know why this falls under their purview, but they're not uh, preventing or, uh, you know, doing anything uh, with diseases and engaging in this project. So the the segment of the population that they want to protect from hurt feelings right now is the lower socioeconomic status. And they want us to stop using poverty-stricken or 
poor people or a phrase like the poor. Now, it seems like those phrases are perfectly useful, and I don't see that they're uh, aimed at anybody whose feelings could be hurt by them. But what they want us to do is use the following phrases, people with low incomes, people or households with incomes below the federal poverty level, people with self-reported income in the lowest income bracket, if income brackets are defined. Now, what the heck? Randy's uh, trying not to laugh. He's uh, having a hard time holding it in. The problem here is that when you say the poor people, that's a whole lot fewer syllables than people with self-reported income in the lowest income bracket if income brackets are defined. And Randy has a a question. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I, I have something that I, I thought I could add to that. Number one, I think some of those terms are are demeaning. Yes. I, I, I think that, that they just totally are off base. But I, yeah. I thought of one while you were reading those, Doug. Oh, please share. So you use this in the context of someone that you're visiting with that is not really up to snuff on a particular knowledge base. Okay. I mean, dummy? Yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you can say, you, sir, have spent your entire life outrunning knowledge and you have been successful. <laughs> That's not bad. That sounds like something Winston Churchill would have come up with. It mm-hmm. sounds like it's going to be a compliment. And it right at the end, it turns and it, and the, the person's head would be spinning. Wait a minute. That wasn't a compliment after all. That was kind of insulting. Winston well, Churchill had some had some awesome ones like that. Absolutely. Well, so there was, one, the there was one that was uh, you know attributed to Winston Churchill. That some woman said, "If you were married to me, I would poison you." Yeah. And he said, "If I if you were married to me, I'd take it." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would. I would drink it. He said. Um, the <laughs> CDC has one final thing about poor people. You can't call them poor people anymore. You got to say people experiencing poverty, but do not use the word underserved when you mean low SES, which is socioeconomic status. Don't don't use the word underserved. Everywhere else in this list, they say use the word underserved, but they say don't use it when you mean low socioeconomic status. Then they have a note and it's uh, people with lower socioeconomic status should only be used when the social uh, socioeconomic status is defined. For example, when income, education, parental education, and occupation are used as a measure of socioeconomic status, what the hell are they doing? Why aren't they out preventing and curing diseases instead of telling us how to speak and how to describe people that we uh, come into contact with? Um, it irritates me, and by golly, I'm going to keep it up until either I finish their whole book of of, um, co- of English language uh, corrections, or else uh, until I get uh, ridden out of here on a rail. That, that's the other possibility that the audience rises up and and decides to uh, just make sure that I never discuss the CDC ever again. Here we go. I threatened to uh, address this uh, particular situation a few episodes ago, and then I found that there was a link in the article that I wanted to get uh, the actual results of the link because uh, I thought, okay, I can quiz Randy because the audience always likes it when I uh, have a quiz. For He quizzes me all the time. I'd like to quiz him once in a while. This is about hot flashes, and I wanted to quiz Randy. In, in, um, in the article, there is a link to a quiz 
um, by which I could ask Randy these questions to see if he has hot flashes or not and to see if he's treating them in a uh, an appropriate way. It's a symptom quiz, basically, and I was so excited. So I went back and I found the original article, and I clicked that link, and I clicked that link, and I clicked it a few more times, and it just never worked. So I'm back with the regular article, and I cannot use the link. But the Food and Drug Administration has just approved a drug. It's got a really long name. It's got a market name, V-E-O-Z-A-H which I don't know, it sounds kind of weird to me, but that name is for moderate to severe hot flashes associated with menopause. And so I guess I'm not going to be able to ask Randy the, the symptom quiz that would tell me whether or not he suffers these hot flashes. I know he hasn't had menopause, but ah. anyway, uh, physicians call hot flashes and night sweats vasomotor symptoms. And that's a term that has been shortened to VMS, Victor let me get let me get my my military alphabet out victor mike sierra vms and it was rebranded this drug apparently was rebranded rebranded by a company as part of a pre-launch marketing campaign aimed at consumers and healthcare providers to educate them about vms and to resurrect 20th century myths about menopause they had a Super Bowl ad about hot flashes. That's incredible. Uh, and it, theoretically, hot flashes reached, an, oh, uh, the uh, Super Bowl ad reached an estimated 17 million women between the ages of 35 and 64. That drug is not mentioned in the ad because marketing a drug before it's approved is illegal. But it's not illegal to advertise a disease or a symptom rebranded as a disease. So they're making hot flashes from a symptom into a disease. The heat on the street advertisement encourages people to go to what's VMS, W-H-A-T-S, what's VMS.com, sponsored by the company that makes the drug. <clears throat> and um, then they uh, it's packed with personal testimonials and a symptom quiz, which I could never get to work. In our experience, all pharma-funded funded symptom quizzes are designed to fail most users. And this is no exception. Even if you answer that you are not really experiencing any symptoms to every question on the VMS quiz, you'll still be reminded to talk to your healthcare provider if you ever do start feeling the heat. So uh, on the other side of the equation, uh, this company primed physicians with information on VMS. They sponsored a continuing medical education module for healthcare providers to learn about symptom management. The marketing of this drug thus far is a classical symptom of condition branding in which a particular condition is linked with a particular drug. There's only one drug for what industry terms a disease state. And then there is no, if there is only one drug, then there is no need to market the drug. The only two symptoms proven to be associated with menopause are hot flashes and vaginal dryness. So uh, estrogen therapies help both, but this drug in question, uh, and I gave you the market name, uh, the I think the uh, trade name is F-E-Z-O-L-I-N-E-T-A-N-T. That treats only hot flashes. So I guess it's maybe less useful than estrogen treatment. I don't know. Hot flashes may last months, years, or in some instances, decades. 
Certainly, bothersome symptoms should be treated, but women must receive accurate information on treatments offered to them. Um, this particular drug may not have the same adverse effect uh, uh, as hormone therapy does, but it doesn't seem to work well for hot flashes, and it does nothing for dryness. So this um, this drug may be only a little better than a placebo. It appears that the company, in this particular article, it says that uh, the company may be exaggerating the prevalence and severity of hot flashes in the hopes that it can claim a small piece of an expanded market for a drug that at best provides only modest benefit. This is a guest commentary. I didn't realize it was going to take an editorial position. Uh, I thought we would have more fun with it. Randy looks like he's completely bored since he doesn't suffer from hot flashes, and I don't think he wants even to think about uh, the possibility. I have have a question, Doug. Ask away, Randy. Back Well, I don't know if this is particularly unique to a software engineer like me, but we used to have a joke or at least a saying back in the day that says, if all you've got is a hammer, uh-huh. everything in the world looks like a nail. Well, you're right there. And so in this case, this drug is designed to cure hot flashes and, and the promotion around the drug is designed to make sure everybody thinks they have hot flashes. Yeah, sounds to me like. Well, let's leave the world of hot flashes and enter the world of uh, people who are hard of hearing. Notice how I put the word people first. That's what the CDC would What'd like you me say, to do. What you say, Doug? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, I can't I put, hear you. Put that big old horn in your ear and hold it up to the speaker. <laughs> and the question of the day is an OTC, over-the-counter hearing aid, right for you? Question mark. Buying one may now be as easy as getting drugstore reading glasses. This past fall, the law authorizing the sale of over-the-counter hearing aids finally went into effect five years after it passed in Congress. So Congress passed this five years ago. It took them that long to get their poop together for people that want to buy hearing aids over-the-counter. That seems unconscionable to me. Um, Adults with mild to moderate hearing loss can now buy certain hearing aids without having to get them through an audiologist, a doctor, or another licensed hearing aid specialist. You may be seeing some over-the-counter aids on store shelves uh, with more sure to come. Here is expert advice on how to figure out whether you're a good candidate for an over-the-counter hearing aid and what to know when you're shopping for these devices. First of all, rule out other hearing problems or other ear problems. Although most hearing loss is irreversible, it's sometimes caused by a medical problem, such as an infection or earwax buildup. Um, So that's one thing you should do before you buy uh, the hearing aids is rule out other particular problems that hearing aids aren't going to solve. Also, you should evaluate your hearing. You don't need a formal hearing test before you try over-the-counter. They're meant to address self-perceived mild to moderate hearing loss. And research suggests that such self-perception is reliable, said Larry Humes, Ph.D. He's a distinguished professor emeritus of speech, language, and hearing sciences at IU, Indiana University. The factor that most likely determines whether somebody will seek hearing aids and use them and benefit from them is their perceived hearing disability, not what the audiogram or, uh, you know, the um, official results of a hearing test would show. Still, you should consider 
whether you might have more severe hearing loss. According to the FDA, you should see a professional. If you're unable to hear speech in a quiet room or very loud sounds such as power tools and engines. Uh, A third thing is to consider your needs. Some people may want to see an audiologist because they have unusually complex or specific hearing needs. This might include somebody like a litigator who frequently works in a large and echoey courtroom or a teacher in a big classroom filled with children in all directions. So the next segment of this article is how to shop. Look for solid consumer protections when comparing over-the-counter hearing aids. You may want to opt for products that offer longer warranty predict, uh, pro- longer warranty periods and more robust support networks. <clears throat> You should also check the return policy. It can take a few weeks to get used to a new hearing aid, so make sure that you'll have a month or longer to try the the, uh, new hearing aids out and uh, return them if uh, they don't work for you. Also, verify available support. Many over-the-counter devices are likely to incorporate a process by which you customize the device to your specific hearing loss, often called fitting. So with traditional hearing aids, this is done by an audiologist and a hearing aid dispenser. Investigate the company's online phone-based support and offerings uh, for this process. Having more help in figuring out a new hearing aid can increase the likelihood that you'll be satisfied with it. Uh, Also consider features. You may want to seek out features such as connectivity with your smartphone. Some will require this to operate. Um, How would the hearing aids stand up to sweat or will they be resistant to water? Do they have rechargeable batteries? Another feature many people like is a telecoil, which allows you to connect your hearing aid directly to the sound system of large venues. All right. Well, sounds like fun. I am not in the hearing loss population, but I am, I know several people who are, and I'm hoping that being able to buy their hearing aids over the uh, counter brings the price down dramatically because that's a major expense for these guys. So I don't know. You don't seem to have any hearing loss, Randy. Would that be correct? Oh, I have a lot of hearing loss in one ear, uh, mostly due to my stupidity. Ooh. When I was young. Sounds like another good story coming our way. When I was young and somewhere in my 20s, I thought that I could go. I'm a big target shooter. Mm -hmm. And some people would argue that I have ruined my own hearing, and I would agree with them. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But uh, long story short is, uh, yeah, I've got uh, some major hearing loss. But for some reason, uh, I get by. The only time I really, you know, have I struggle is... uh, in a noisy environment, I have a hard time hearing, you know, speech, you know, uh-huh. people talking, people talking to me in a noisy environment. But other than that, you know, like when I'm in a relatively quiet space, you know, I don't have any problems at all. But right. uh, the, the noisy environment, I really do have. I, I've discovered, you know, back in the day when we were having to wear what masks. Uh huh. Yes. Yes. Uh, those stupid days. Yeah, I, I I discovered, much to my chagrin, that I depend a lot on lip reading. Oh no, kidding! Wow. When I when well, I'm in a no, when I'm in a noisy environment. Well, I got to tell you, I'm a kindred spirit because we used to have our own skeet range, and I shot a lot of skeet. Never used any hearing protection back then, 
So I haven't noticed that my hearing is um, damaged in any way. I suppose Mary might tell you that I am not as responsive to her orders and uh, as I as she would like me to be. But I grew up with my parents. Uh, my father apparently it was a big joke in our house that he had selective hearing. Oh, um, yeah. But then it occurred to me one day, uh, the the light bulb went on in my head. I had for completely ignored the fact that he was an artillery officer in mm-hmm. Korea. Mm-hmm. And uh, as an artillery officer, he was probably uh, killing his hearing every time they fired a cannon. Yeah. And they fired at a lot of Chinese and North Koreans. Yes, they did. And my wife... She would she would argue that I have selective hearing loss also. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it seems to pop up quite often when she's trying to get me to do something. Well, I understand that. <laughs> hey, I'd like to get you to do something now, which is to release the audience to their normal lives. Yes, yes. we have used up our time. The 75 cents is gone. Uh-huh. So there's a couple, three things, four things I always like to do before we cut you loose. One is Doug loves to hear from you, so get out your pencil. You can write him at dbj at mlmlbag.com. Also, he mentioned earlier, but I'll mention it again because it bears repeating, he is a licensed agent to help you with your Medicare supplement planning nationwide. You can check us out on our website at medicareforthelazyman.com. We would also appreciate you, you know, filing a couple reviews for us uh, on the podcast and the book. It always helps us out. But more important than any of that, we both, Doug and I, want to thank you for joining us. You could have been doing a lot of things in a lot of different places, but you weren't. You spent some time with us, and we certainly do appreciate it. Now, in terms of time, I always warn people to keep track of their wristwatch because it, it sometimes time gets away from us. But in today's uh, timing, I looked, we have spent about 32 and a half minutes with Doug Jones, the anti-insurance insurance guy from Oklahoma. No more. He's living up in the high ground behind Cave Creek, Arizona, with his army surplus telescope. And I'm going to put him I'm going to put him in at about ten thousand two hundred and fifty three feet. Oh, boy. I I bought a telescope that leaves me with a black eye. So I got to figure out what the problem is with that. But ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us today. And we'll hope that you join us again for our next episode. Bye bye.